that was maybe where I was a little bit socialized at Rolling Stone. I mean, for many years, I was one of the only female editors. And I just noticed how direct the men were. Um, I mean, not to generalize, but in, in, for my particular case, they really were. And they would say, hey, can you do this? And if it didn't happen, like, great, they just kind of moved on. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of learned from them to just ask. I mean, my husband, even now, he says all the time, just ask. Yeah. Just ask. I know. My husband says that to me a lot, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and if they say no, like, they aren't thinking about you. Yeah. They're, not, they're not, you know, I would do this thing before I worked at Rolling Stone where I would, if I had to ask for a favor or, you know, um, I would think about it for so long. I would agonize over an email or maybe it was snail mail then, you know, or <laughs> copy paper. It was <laughs> a telegram. And then, um, it, but they aren't thinking about it. Yeah. They're getting 200 emails. They don't care. Like, I kept thinking of what it's like on the other end. Like, the person isn't obsessing about you the way you're thinking they are. They're going, oh, oh, I don't want to do this. No, done. Like, to take the emotion out of it whenever you can. Like, that's, that's what I saw over and over again. And, and just ask, I think, is a good mantra to have. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today's guest is Jancy Dunn, the author of the new book, How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids. Jancy, you are killing it. Thank you so much. I love that. (laughs) Thanks for being here. And um, first, let's start off by hearing about what made you write this book. Okay. I married an evolved guy. You know, a nice guy. A a guy that I liked enough to have him impregnate me, right? (laughs) And then after I had our daughter, you know, before that, we really didn't squabble that much. But after we had our daughter, we fought a lot. And it was about that classic thing that you address so much on this podcast about division of labor. I know how, I know exactly how much he works because he and I, we both work at home together. We both work at a kitchen table. I'm at one end, he's at the other, he wears headphones. And so I knew exactly what his day was like because he was right there. And then bizarrely, I just started doing all the work. Like he used to do the laundry and suddenly I was doing the laundry. And I started, you know, I was feeding the baby anyway. I was the food. So, and then I'm doing all the food and just gradually everything goes to me. And I was doing that thing. You've talked about this before, I know, about, like, I thought, oh, okay, I got this. I can kind of do this whole motherhood thing pretty well. So the more you gave me, the more I could do. I'm knocking things down. I'm a real um, box checker too. Like, I just love to cross things off, you know? And so I was just, I was just gobsmacked at how... I just suddenly looked around one day and thought, like, hold up. You know, I really am doing everything. And and his life did not significantly change after mm-hmm. he had mm-hmm. a child in it. Like, it was, I found, like, he was making plans on the weekend or nighttime and not telling me. And just heading out the door because, I, you know, I was home. I was taking care of things. Now, granted, I don't like to go out at night. But still, yeah. no consulting with me, like, sleeping in you know he was still doing his saturday morning soccer league and then he'd have to have a nap afterwards and (laughs) the nap there was something about the nap that just enraged me because i would never presume to take a nap well the sleep deprivation of early parenthood yes you're deranged it falls very heavily on the women especially if you're breastfeeding right yes exactly and then 
to have that, like the nap would probably add salt to the wounds of already feeling very exhausted and resentful about that. Precisely. And I remember one time I went in there and he wasn't napping. He had his phone and he quickly shoved it under his pillow. I mean, I went, I went berserk and that's where the fighting of the title came in because I just, you know, I had a temper to begin with. You're deranged, you know, right. hormones, exactly. Oh, yeah. And then just, I just thought like, how did our lives turn out like this? And, and I did have to point to myself a, a lot of times too. I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm being oppressed by this guy. No, I, I allowed the situation to unfold and I was extremely controlling um, maternal gatekeeping, they call it. And that was a problem also. So I had to examine my own behavior. This is not like a takedown of my husband. I mean, I do make fun of him in the book, but you know, and this is also not for people who are in like horrible abusive relationships. It's for people who marry nice guys. And then you can't believe kind of how clueless they are. Like, can I tell you one more thing? This was another thing that really, okay. So one time you have two children. I know you've been there. I'm in the kitchen and I'm an octopus. I'm Vishnu. I've got like a million things going on. I'm checking homework. I'm cooking dinner. I'm looking at a recipe. I'm, you know, I have like, you know, a human leg warmer on my leg, right? Like (laughs) clutching. And I was also emptying the dishwasher. And so Tom gets up and he comes over and I, I honestly like had a physiological reaction. Like, oh good, you know, some help. He weaves past me to get to the fridge to get his wine. Then he opens up the refrigerator door and says, no wine left. And I said, no, there's no wine left. Lord Grantham. I'm sorry. I'll alert the staff. There should be in the, you know, stock room should be, should be uh, restocked. And I, I just, I went nuts and I yelled at him. And then I realized like, you know, my temper, we have the classic, I don't mean to make this all Mars Venus, but like there's a, 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 a research pattern of male female arguments and he stonewalls, you know, mm-hmm. he waits for me to simmer down. I yell louder. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I lose my temper. He stonewalls and retreats. And I realized that we were kind of, um, you know, I was afraid I was going to ruin our daughter because we were, we were also, we were fighting. Remember we used to sit and watch, um, did you ever watch Curious George with your kids? Yes. It's very soothing, yeah. right? Piano music. Like it isn't as frantic as some of those other. Yeah. yeah. What was up? I don't really know what that whole dynamic was about, but you know, and we used to fight over her big toddler head, like no, you, you see the way I mean, and like we thought she, you know, she could barely speak at that point, you know, but of course she was absorbing it. Mm-hmm. And babies as young as six months, when their parents are fighting, their brain waves go berserk. You know, researchers have measured this that they have a stress response. You're stressing out your six month old, uh-huh. and and it's just. You know, that was my impetus for doing the project and writing the book, like, we're ruining the kid, which now I feel ashamed, like, my marriage was crumbling, but it was all about, like, oh, I don't want her on the therapist's couch, Yeah. you know, so it was a nice bonus that, oh, wait, I I have an ally right here, you know? No, that's true. I think we start to just focus so much on the child's well-being and forget about our own well-being. Yes. But this whole um, idea of kind of the second shift that women have and how overwhelming and exhausting it is and how it even interferes with your uh, ability to achieve your potential in your career, something that I think a lot about. I've been on Mm -hmm. Amtrak before, surrounded by men on business travel and like texting my girlfriend who also often is in like, she's often in first class and saying I'm the only 
or business class on planes and saying, I'm the only mm-hmm. woman here. And I'm texting her and saying, I bet you none of these men around me are researching summer camp right now. You know, like <laughs> I don't want to be researching summer camp right now. I want to be working, you know? Exactly. Um, so, and my husband does a lot. He really does mm-hmm. a lot. I will give him credit for that. The early childhood years though, it's like, I feel like the odds are against us because of the whole breastfeeding thing, right. which means you're the only one that can feed them and get them to sleep, mm-hmm. which right. is basically the main things you need to do with babies. Yeah. And then the thing that I really hate and that I really hope changes is the maternity leave and not the paternity leave because you become yes. the expert. You're the expert because you've been home for months with the baby and he goes right. off to work two weeks later. His life is like the same as, you know. Yes. And, and he doesn't you become the expert. So you get to be better than everything because you're doing it all the time. And then it starts this defer to the one who knows how to do it. Yes. And it just, if he's hesitant, yeah. it puts off a hesitant father, yeah. doesn't it? Because he's not in the trenches. Yeah. Yes. I totally agree. And, um, so what are some yeah. of the, so what are the, and in your, you, you, in your quest to figure this out, you spoke to mm-hmm. all kinds of experts. I did. And I spoke to everyone from, um, like neuroscientists and FBI crisis negotiators to try and like bring down my temper, sociologists. You know, I even told myself, I I talked to a a couple of different evolutionary biologists about like, do men need alone time? And social psychologists about like, because I'd always told myself that when I mentioned Tom's, you know, um, long sojourns on his bike, I thought, oh, well, men need alone time. No, that's something, that's a social construct that I, I told myself that I heard my mother say that doesn't have any research basis. They don't need it any more than we do. Humans need a long time. You know, and they, I, I had to like sift through the things that I told myself that I had learned from my own upbringing. But, um, well, the, on, yeah. on that topic, the thing that drives me insane mm-hmm. is the freaking man cave. Oh, with the man cave. The man cave. I know. I, and because I used to watch a lot of these real estate shows. We like watching the real estate shows. <laughs> and they're always like, well, this house is a man cave. I'm like, where is the woman cave? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. But I wonder if the woman cave, I mean, over and over with these experts, they said, you know, you have to take time for yourself, which you've addressed also. And I feel like, you know, there was this one sociologist, Pamela Smock, at the University of Michigan, who I loved, and she said, you must leave the premises to take time for yourself. So maybe there is no, you know, that's woman true. cave because you That's have a to good leave. point. That's you, a good point. You take a bath, your toddler's going to climb into the bath with you. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter did it the other night to me, and she said to my husband, we're taking me time together. I'm like, mm, you're not getting the whole concept of me time, you know? So I make myself leave. And also you don't, you know, and this goes back to my kind of grandiosity where I, I could not leave for the first like five years of my child's life. I wouldn't even go out for like a half an hour or go to the gym or take care of myself. And when you go out, you know that phrase time contamination that women do when when you go out, like God forbid you allow yourself to sit on a park bench and relax. Like instead you're going to go pick up like sports socks for your kids and do something useful, you know, so yeah. I had to train myself not to do that. But um yeah, not to be a slave to your to-do list. I mean, yes, I find that's what ends. happens to me is that I get a bit of free the time. List. And I'm like, oh, I finally have time to get all those things that I need to get done. And, mm-hmm. and so I, f- I convince myself that that's what I really want to be doing. Yes. Is I'm, doing those things because mm-hmm. it will make me feel so much better to have them done. Yes. But then I never have that time. I mean, I'm working on that very recently. Do you, do you, do you leave Very recently, you? I'm starting to work on that. Fitness? Do you go out to go to the gym or? I don't go out to go to the gym, but I do luckily now live in a big house and my kids are old enough that I can like go and be like, I'm doing yoga. And if anybody talks to me, like, and I 
pretty much laid down the law that they In will the premises, not, you can, they will you not can, be okay. messing with me when I'm doing my yoga. How about friends? Do you meet friends for coffee? Yes. Or, okay. So you leave to meet friends yeah. for coffee yeah. and you say, I'm coming back. I mean, that took me a long time to train myself to do. But I wanted to tell you there was, um, when I did research on, um, on this, this invisible work, uh, there was, Pamela Smock again, told me the funniest one. It was called kin work. And I said, okay, what is kin work? And she said it was giving emotional support to relatives, buying presents, sending cards, you know, you're arranging FaceTime with Nana, planning the holiday celebrations. I mean, my husband doesn't do any of that. And I do stuff with his parents, you know, I, I do all the birthday stuff and the cards and that's kin work. And then there's emotion work and that's checking on the well-being of everyone in the house. Like, you know, is your tween still fighting with her friend? And like, you know, does the cat need kidney medication? And, um, and then there's even like travel time, just the schlepping time. Oh, okay. Wait, there's also consumption labor. That's buying the kids' underwear, the socks we talked about. Like, that's consumption labor. Buying the kids' clothes for the next season. All yes. Stuff. Like, purging the clothes from the last season. Oh, the purging. And <laughs> men will do um, big ticket items, she found, the sociologist, um, like the large screen TV in the refrigerator. But, like, the kids' sport, sporting equipment, the, the women are doing that. And then there's um, average daily household support travel time. There's a phrase that makes you want to kill yourself, right? That's schlepping the kids around. And women do it an average of. That's why I won't leave more. the city. That's why I will not leave the city. Because you'll be in the car. For I life, will not leave the city right? for that reason. I know. So <laughs> you know when when you start toting up all of that stuff, and the most pervasive job we've already been over this a little bit is household manager, and that's making sure everything runs on time and everyone's appointments and you know medical appointments. Medical appointments. I mean, you know and. She was saying, if a mother hands her husband a grocery list, he's given credit for the shopping, but she constructed the list. She knows the little foibles that the cereal your kid likes. You know, I unpack the groceries if he's going to get them, and I put them where they go. And so, you know, once you start toning up that stuff, you could go out of your freaking mind. Um, so I started doing that, and I thought, okay, we have a problem. You know, and we, we had to – when you have a child, you have a new relationship. It's brand new, really. And we had to start from scratch – and construct everything from the ground up. And that included clear division of labor because so many people told me from psychologists to marriage counselors to time management experts, you know, that you, the arguments arise when there's a lack of clarity. And when your roles are clear, that takes care of a lot. I and mean, when we used to do this thing where we would argue about who deserves to sleep in on a Saturday more, you know, and I would say, I carried it for nine months. Like, you know, you throw that argument back in their face. But, okay, one sleeps out on a Saturday, one sleeps out on a Sunday. Like, we clear, 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 clear. So that, that helped tremendously. So did you divvy up all that work that we were just talking about? Have you gotten him to take on some of that stuff? Yes, we did everything. We sat down, and we even have, this is not sexy, but we have meetings every Saturday or Friday night. We might have one tonight. We're, um, and we, we, we parcel out the weekend. We negotiate. Um, chunks of time with each other. Like, okay, you can go here if I can do this. And we really do. It's, it's so boring. I try to like kind of make it more fun with some baked goods. Like, you know, I did some, some nice chocolate bread that I got from Balthazar that made it more fun, you know, donuts, but, um, you know, everything is up for renegotiation. I feel like, and, and through my career, I've gotten pretty good at nego negotiating. And so it, I applied it to my marriage. 
I want to hear about your career as well. So it's really fascinating. But um, back one more follow up on this point, though, is I noticed that you know, in order to do this, in order to negotiate, then you have to be comfortable making clear what it is that you want and you need. And that's something yes. that I've been really encouraging my listeners to focus on for their yes. happiness as well as their career success and their life fulfillment. Mm-hmm. That we have all just lost touch with our own inner wants and needs because yes, society has, ta- has taught us that we our job is to satisfy everybody else's wants and needs. And mm-hmm. we just, or nature, what part of it is nature, what part of it is nurture, I'm not sure. But it's not something that helps us, you know, it's a self-destructive kind of tendency to always focus on everyone else and makes you disconnect with your inner self, right? Yes. So you have to be able to know what it is that you want and what you need and then feel comfortable demanding it. Yes. And, and that, that was, you know, if you asked me what the most surprising thing about the book, it was, it was that to sort of take ownership of my own needs and, and to feel entitled to ask for things, to delegate, to, to be clear on what I wanted. You know, often my reaction was so emotion based that I would kind of go from zero to 16. It was very much like I'm doing everything around here, you know? And I, instead of saying, okay, I'm doing 50 things. What I need for you to do is this, this, and this, you know, and PS, my seven-year-old, you can help out too, you know, put your laundry away, go clean your room. Like, you know, I can't do everything for you. And, and when I was calm and more of a grown up, that really helped. And also, you know, sort of check in with yourself and see what you're upset about, how you're feeling and, and not to assume that he can read your mind. Like I really thought that he was deliberately ignoring me. Um, but he wasn't, he was just kind of clueless. And so it, it, it was, you know, the impetus was on me to say, okay, listen, hello, help out. Or, you know, you can take her to a birthday party. I don't have to take her to all the birthday parties. Um, and not to ascribe some like evil motive to him when he wasn't helping me out. You know, I used to put this thought bubble above his head. It's what Brene Brown calls the story I'm making up. Mm-hmm. And the thought bubble would be, ha ha, I'm oppressing my wife. What a sucker. <laughs> While I play computer chess with some guy from the Philippines. He loves computer chess too. That's a way for him to also check out while still being bodily present. And he really wasn't, he's not a jerk. Again, it's being a household manager to have to say like, hey, could you get up and lo- load the dishwasher? Like it doesn't take a PhD to load a dishwasher. Like, come on, you know? So, and that's being the manager and that's still siphoning your energy and it's annoying, mm-hmm. but it's less energy for me to say, yep, come on, help me out, you know, than to, than to waste all my energy fuming or being angry. But I want to hear also about your, your fascinating career because, you know, you've done such interesting things working as a journalist at, at Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. Being an MTV VJ, yes, you, you wrote a book about Cindy Lauper with Cindy Lauper. I did. I know it's a bunch of different things. That is so amazing. I mean, <laughs> I grew up in the '80s, so Cindy. Mm-hmm. Every girl of the '80s just loves Cindy Lauper, oh, right? Her, her. She's really great. Girls too. just want to have fun anthem for women. You should be in her kitchen. Her kitchen. Okay, do you remember that video? Girls just want uh-huh, to have fun. Uh-huh. Her kitchen in her apartment on the Upper West Side, looks exactly like that. <laughs> That's where I lived every day when I would go to her apartment. Can you believe? That's it funny. was really cool. So yes, I've done a bunch of different things. I mean, if you're a writer in this day and age, you have to have a lot of different pots on the stove. I mean, I was at Rolling Stone as a staff writer and an editor for uh, 15, no, 13 years? I'm an old rock chick. Not anymore, but uh, um, so 
yes, I mean, it was all very circuitous. I remember I, I got an English degree and everyone kept saying, you want to be a teacher? I didn't. I wanted to write for a magazine, but I lived in New Jersey, Chatham, New Jersey. And I remember I was working at this bad ad agency where I had to fact check heart medicine copy in Cranford, <laughs> New Jersey, Strategic Medical Corporation. And I thought, is this, is this all there is? Like I'm 21 and I'm in this ratty little office. I'm, this is horrible. And then I'm at a party and I'm around the beer bong chanting in someone's basement. And I met a girl who worked at Rolling Stone and I said, can I give you my you know, resume? I went in and I got the job, crazily enough. And I was that person who stayed late, who volunteered to do anything. And I, I worked my way up. I was just so happy to be there. That's I did amazing. not feel entitled. I was, I kept thinking, I mean, I wonder how much of a motivator fear, you know, imposter syndrome and fear is in like helping you to do well. Because I thought I have to do a better job than all these people. And I really, I really worked very hard. And, um, and then, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's, it's who you know, and you, Here's, here's why you should be nice to people. While I was at Rolling Stone, I was reviewing probably CDs at that point. Might have been cassettes for Interview Magazine. And there was a fact checker that would call me. And um, I loved her voice was very nice on the phone. And I, we just, you know, I was just really nice. To her. I really was nice to everyone. And it was Jill Cartman. Do you know the one who writes, who's, who does Odd Mom Out? Yeah, actually, know the, I know Elisa Zaretsky and Julie Rottenberg were on your show. Oh, okay. The co-executive producer yes. of Odd Mom Out. Yes. <laughs> and I went on her serious radio show not long ago, and she said, I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. And I had totally forgotten that it was little Jill who used to call me. And she said, you were nice to me, and other people were nice to me, and I never forgot it. And I thought, wow, you really never know. Yeah. You know, now she you can buy know. and sell me. <laughs> And she has, she's so successful and lovely and fantastic. So that was that was really neat. Yeah, I did an episode. Everybody check out that past podcast episode with the, the co-executive producer. I, have to, I haven't heard that yeah, one. Oh yeah. my gosh, I have to. I love that show and I love her. Um, and you also, I mean, you came into contact with celebrities. Like, what was that like? I mean, you wrote a whole book about this. You wrote a I whole did. book about your experience Yes, that was a long time. Let's see, that was in like 2006. It was called But Enough About Me, and it was about my life at Rolling Stone and then MTV2. I, I mean, my first big interview was um, was Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols. I was like a kid. Oh I think he still had a perm at that point. I was like a Jersey girl. And <laughs> I got thrown into it. So I've interviewed everybody, like Madonna, Bono, Beyonce. Madonna? Like oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I would love – that is like my dream to meet Madonna. She was really cool. And she was enormously pregnant with Rocco. And I – they said, get there early. She's a stickler for being on time. If you're one minute late, the interview is over, and you will not reschedule it. You're done. So I got there an hour early. And I went to her place in um, – I went to her uh, office at Maverick Records in Los Angeles – I get there an hour early, I, I take a car, I go in, and I forgot my questions in the car. <gasps> I, I thought I was going to throw up. And I, unfortunately, I had memorized them because I'm very compulsive. And I over-prepare with everybody. You know, I'll, you know, any celebrity, I can tell you, like, the name of their dog when they were five. Like, I really go nuts. And you think they're going to be pleased and flattered, but they expect you to know everything. You know? Oh, really? Yeah. And I remember at one point... I said, oh, uh, Madonna, can I? It was so weird because she was pregnant. And at the time, she didn't like a lot of pictures of her being pregnant. I had to help her out of a chair. It was so weird. And I said, can I use your bathroom? Because I promised my friend Susan to tell her what was in her bathroom cabinet <laughs> of her office. And so I said, 
Okay, Susan, I'm in the bathroom. Um, okay, she has uh, La Mer face cream, the lotion, not the cream. She has something called a hypochondriac's handbook. She had a like geranium face spray, and I had to give all the brands and stuff. It was great. And she was really cool because she's, she's no BS. Like She was very straightforward, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. Like She doesn't lie. She's thoughtful about her answers. I really liked her. Yeah. And I did... Brad Pitt. You I said did, Beyonce you know, four times? Four times. Isn't that nuts? Oh, my goodness. I remember one time I went traveling with her on the tour bus, and she was with Destiny's Child. They all had self-help books about how to meet a man. Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. And I thought, if Beyonce, if Beyonce is, is reading this book, like, I'm done. Like, I'll she's never had, Well, date. she's had a feminist revolution now. I don't yeah, think she's she reading has. that book anymore. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, you know, and then I was a VJ. I was the sex columnist at GQ under wait, a wait. pseudonym. Wait, 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 wait. You said one thing before there. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. He, I worshipped him in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I had such a thing for him in the 90s. Was he as good looking in person as he is on... He, you know what? <laughs> I, he, I, I mean, just from my own... He wasn't... He was just kind of like a... Um, like, your, like a college buddy that you would have. Like, he was like very kind of... Not a bro exactly, yeah. but... Um, like at one point, I had to go to him, and it took twenty four hours. He was shooting in the Canadian Rockies, and it was like planes, trains, automobiles. I remember I was taking like a four by four to get up to him after taking one of those tiny prop planes where I thought I was going to die because the pilot went back to use the bathroom at one point. I'm like, who's you? Who's flying the plane? And so I finally get there after twenty five hours, no sleep, and I get to his trailer, and that's when he wants to just kick back and chill out and. He started playing music and he was playing air guitar. It's exceedingly awkward when someone's <laughs> playing air guitar because, like, what do you do? Like, if I start playing air guitar right now, what are you going to do? Are you playing drums or, like, do you play rhythm guitar? Or, like, what do you do? And I remember kind of, like, thoughtfully looking out the window of his trailer to the Canadian Rockies because I'm like, is he going to stop anytime soon? He had, like, a giant box of Twizzlers and he kept, like, eating the Twizzlers and then playing like, the air guitar. And it, he just, it, it was like, it was like having, like, he wasn't, he didn't do it for me. No. But he was perfectly nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And very interesting is that when you're on a film set, I've been on many of them, you see how the crew treats these people and that's how you know what they're really like. Like, oh. is the driver happy to be around them? Is uh-huh. the driver comfortable saying something? Often the drivers are told not to talk to these people, uh-huh. to the celebrities. Okay. Do, do, do PAs come up to them and, and talk to them or yeah. do they keep their distance? Uh-huh. And everyone was all over him. So, so I knew that he was nice. a good guy. Yeah. Okay. Whereas you can tell, you know, with other people that they're nightmares. I saw George Clooney one time filming something in Brooklyn, and I was like, ah, oh, really? Like, looks like a normal guy to me. Didn't look like anything spectacular to me. Let me tell you, I had lunch with him, <laughs> and he is all that. He is. You know why? Because he's smart, and he's funny. Okay. I mean, if you were to just sort of, you know, no, everyone went nuts for him. We, we had this weird lunch at Rolling Stone where we could get celebrities to come in and have lunch with us. And Jan Winter, my publisher, sat me next to him. It was so weird. And I said to George Clooney, you know, like, he got up at one point to get a sandwich, and everyone, man, woman, child, animal, we were all staring at him. And it was because he had that charisma. It's he's charisma. He's so smart and funny. And when he's off the record yeah. and laughing, and he, he is, his wit is really good, and that makes him even more attractive. But you could feel comfortable with him. And I leaned over at one point, and I'm like, why the hell are you here? Because <laughs> why are you in some conference room at Rolling Stone? Like, how did Jan get you to do this? Yeah. And he was like, long story, I'll tell you after. But he was, he was a cool guy. You That's saw him in the funny. neighborhood? He was around? Yeah, he was filming of something in Brooklyn Heights, actually. Oh, okay. recently? Yeah. No, it was like probably like five years ago okay. or something. But I was like, mm, mm. How about that? 
didn't but stir I your womanhood. But I wasn't having a charismatic conversation. I if was just watching him If he came over and talked to you, you would have, like, breakaway clothing. I'm telling you. <laughs> So yeah, I did all these weird things. I was a sex columnist. I was. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so what is a sex columnist? How did you get that? It's just, just people you know. It's it's someone that was again that I was nice to back in the day that rose up and then said, "Oh, I know where you'd be great." Like, it really was connections. It's like all my cronies, I guess you know, and I helped them too. Like, yeah. And a lot of them are women. I mean, not to bring it back yeah. again to your podcast, but like, inevitably, my my women friends have helped each other. On the way over to here, I said to um, my friend Susan, the, the medicine cabinet girl, I said, I really need to get into my book into this certain website. And she said, leave it to me. Two minutes later, I get a text. It's done. We're excerpting your book. Like, she just called someone and said, like, make it happen. And, you know, it's just, you know. So you're making it sound really easy. Um, and I've talked a lot yeah. about, like, how much, how important networking is. Yes. But did it just come naturally to you? Like, a lot of women are really good at making the contacts, but then they're not good at going back and asking for things, right? So you mm-hmm. just asked for something, which is more than a lot of women can do. Like, I always say we build the network, but then we don't go back to the network and ask for things. Did it come naturally to you to one, like, network, to were you helping other people out? Like, it seems like um, it's just easy for you, but it's not easy for a lot of people. No, it isn't. And, and that was maybe where I was a little bit socialized at Rolling Stone. I mean, for many years, I was one of the only female editors. And I just noticed how direct the men were. Um, I mean, not to generalize, but in, in, for my particular case, they really were. And they would say, hey, can you do this? And if it didn't happen, like, great, they just kind of moved on. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of learned from them to just ask. I mean, my husband, even now, he says all the time, just ask. Yeah. Just ask. I know. My husband says that to me a lot. Too. Yeah. And yeah. and if they say no, like, they aren't thinking about you. Yeah. They're, not, they're not, you know... I would do this thing before I worked at Rolling Stone where I would, if I had to ask for a favor or, you know, I would think about it for so long, I would agonize over an email or maybe it was snail mail then, you know, or <laughs> coffee paper. It was <laughs> a telegram. And then, um, it, but they aren't thinking about it. They're getting 200 emails. They don't care. Like I kept thinking of what it's like on the other end. Like the person isn't, obsessing about you the way you're thinking they are they're going oh oh I don't want to do this no done like to take the emotion out of it whenever you can like that's that's what I saw over and over again and and just ask I think is a good mantra to have and also I also don't I'm I'm pretty transactional I was that way with my husband when I was talking about but I'm also like for this for this excerpt okay this is this is how I operate I'll tell you exactly how I said to my friend, can you make this happen? And she said, yes. And then when I emailed this um, person who was an editorial assistant that my friend said, shove her in here, I said to the editorial assistant, you know, I'll write something for you for free if you need it. I'm at your service. And I think sometimes we can be hesitant to be really not coldly transactional, but like I bargain. I really do. And I feel better when I um, am able to pay someone back. And I put it right out there, right up front. Like, you know, I really appreciate you doing this. And then I offer something specific. Like, I, I feel like then it's, um, then it's just easier. It's equitable. That's so. great. That's great. That's great advice. So you, you just ask for it directly and then you offer something in specific uh, if you can. Specific. Not, not, I mean, this is my Oprah training because I've written for Oprah for many years. It's like, it's that classic thing of even 
when somebody has something terrible happen to them, you know, if some, if, if their parent dies or something, you don't say, let me know if there's anything I can do. You say, I'm, I'm coming to your house, house Tuesday, and I'll do your laundry for you. Or I'm bringing over some food. Can I come over tonight? Like be super specific. And I, I do think that that can apply to, you know, networking and, and business things as well. And, you know, normally I'm old school, so for something like that website, I would make them pay me, even though, you know, I get a lot of these things of like, you know, can you write for me for free? You know, you'll increase your blah, blah, blah. I can't do that. I get paid. I still get paid. I won't for long. I'm sure I'm a relic. But so, you know, she'll take me up on it. I'll even follow up with her and say, is there anything you want me to write? And then I feel free. I don't feel like I was manipulative and gross. Right, right. But I like it that you just ask and you're not, you're not, you're taking the emotion out of the asking. Take the emotion out of the asking. If it's, I mean, a mind trick that I use is I, I really do try to think of the person's email. Like, I can't tell you how I used to agonize over emails, but really like most of us get tons of emails. You, you land on it for a second, whatever the request is, oh, well, and then you get rid of it. But it, it's, it's. They aren't thinking about it. They really aren't. Right. Picture the emails coming in from them, you know? And so do it. Ask, ask, ask. But how do you get your email notice? I mean, that's the other problem is all of the emails coming in is that there's people. That's why you have to have the personal connection. Otherwise, your email's not even going to get read, right? Like yeah. in terms of making, you know, obviously any kind of a cold request or something like that. You need to, you need to have that connection in some way to make it. Yes. And even humor in the subject line. I mean, I've done that a million times. Like, you know, you're catching me in the middle of book promotion and sometimes I've approached people cold and there was another website. I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, it was a Jezebel. And I didn't know the editor at Jezebel. And I just remember in the subject line, I said, hello, may I send you my parenting book? And then I wrote, God, that was a wooden request, but may I send you my parenting book? And that made her laugh, and she opened it up, yeah. you know? And so, you That's know, interesting. Humor, humor in humor the cold works. email. Yes. And then, and then when it came out, you know, I didn't want to influence. She was going to review it, and she could have done a bad review, so I didn't want to bother her until she had written it. And then when she did, I remember being at um, the gym, and I was on the elliptical, and I read it, and I was so... I mean, it was this lovely review. And I remember I was crying on the elliptical and then I emailed her and I thanked her and I said, oh my God, I'm actually crying as I write this, you know? And so, I don't know, hopefully that made her feel good. Um, I, it was sincere. I mean, that's the thing too, is you have to be sincere and you can't be like, you know. So you've done such cool jobs that anyone mm-hmm. would love to have and speaking to all these celebrities and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you know this was the path you were going to go on? Like, did you, you just from the beginning, it seems, just went for what you wanted what you enjoyed. Yes. And I don't want it to sound like I'm, um, overly confident. I mean, I'm racked with doubt all the time, but, um, just do it. Like I, you know, here's another thing. I mean, I, I can think of so many examples where you just have to be a little reckless. And I was my, you know, get out of your own way. I know that's a recurring theme, but like, like don't talk yourself out of it. And, and also like the world may move so fast. If you try something and it doesn't work out, everyone's forgotten about it the next day. Like it may resonate with you and you may like be in the shame spiral, but everyone's moved on. Like I, I used to tell this story to my child every night. She wanted this story about, I, I made it up. She always wanted an original story, which was exhausting at the end of the night, but she knew I was a writer. <laughs> it was about a teddy bear who goes berserk and invites all of his um, friends, stuffed animals over and they have a party while the kid is at school. And I thought, I'm a writer. The hell with it. I'm going to write up 
the story and I'm going to send it to my agent. And, you know, then the voice started like, who are you? You're not a children's book writer. And everyone wants to be a children's book writer. My dentist wants to be a children's book writer. He wants to do one about a tooth, a talking tooth, big surprise, right? And like, I'd heard for years, like, people that I know that actually do write children's books say, oh my God, everyone wants to be a children. Everyone thinks they have that children's book in them. So that whole reel started in my head. And then I thought, no, like, just do it. And again, I have to credit my husband because he, he really doesn't have that inner hectoring voice that stomps you down. Do you know what he does that's a total mind trick? If he sends an email that's important and time sensitive and no one gets back to him, about an hour later, he'll send the same email. You know how you kind of change the email and say, hey, didn't hear from you, but he'll just send the same one. Isn't that like a Vulcan mind F that he does that? Like if you got the same one that was sent an hour later, wouldn't you be like, oh my God, what's up with this person? Like I should probably get back to that. And so he does a lot of stuff like that. So I thought, the hell with it, send it off. Like my agent is doing a million things all day. Right. Like she's not focusing on me. If she thinks I'm a dope and this is stupid, like she'll just say, mm, this isn't right. D depersonalize it. No emotion. You know, I know it's hard and it's coming out of your own brain. And I, I sold it. She sent it around and it got bought. And had I not like had that little like, oh, what the heck, you know, try it, throw it out, throw it out. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. And so my career path has been arbitrary, but um, I did find that when I got out of my own way and I just recklessly did something, I mean, I, I did feel, you know, sometimes I had like stomach pains afterwards, but like one thing would lead to another thing, but it would lead to another thing that would lead to another thing. And it's been kind of crazy all the strange things that I've done, but they've been really satisfying and neat. No, really. Sounds, is that too, that sounds too No, healthy. that's super, no, that's super, that's super cool. I mean, I think for me, you know, I'm always stressing about money. So I guess, I think that's. The, yes, hello. Right, absolutely. <laughs> you know, for me, I think I feel, a lot of people talk about this fear of failure. For me, mm -hmm. I feel like it's less about failure and more about not making ends meet. But I guess that is failure. What is it? And, and that is, but, well, yeah, failure is having an empty bank account. But. No, it, listen, it has not been, you know, I'm making it seem like I just fell into one thing or another thing. No. I mean, before, after the Cindy book, for two years, I thought, oh, okay, I'll just get another celebrity book. And it didn't happen. And I was, if you knew how much I made during those two years, it was, it was pathetic. And I was, I was doing like bad, um, you know, freelance stories and I'm going to write about what it was like someday because it was it was rough. And, you know, no, it has not all been roses. And when it's a terrible feeling when you think, what's going to happen when I'm in my 60s? Like, am I going to be able to sustain my career? Like, can I pay the bills? And, like, people have always asked me my whole life, you know, what happens when you get what, – what gets you out of writer's block? I'm like, seeing my Amex bill, that gets my mortgage. <laughs> Writer's block, bye-bye. I don't, I don't have the luxury of, you know, I crank it out. Yeah. But no, you know, no, I've had, some, I've had some tough years where these assignments weren't coming and magazines were contracting. Yeah. And that's why I got this right. book gig because I thought like, gee, I don't know if I can write magazines for a living anymore. Yeah. Back in, you know, the aughts, I used to make a decent living at magazines. Yeah. I was on staff. And then it's just... You know, the, the whole industry is definitely struggling. Oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah. So, but I just, you know, I just learned to be adaptable, to consider things I wouldn't have considered before. And it's funny, you know, all my friends at MTV, 
they had these cushy jobs and they were in publicity and 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 now they're adapting. They're all in their fifties or late forties and they're trying to adapt. One's at BuzzFeed, you know, another's at She Knows Media, like all those kinds of companies. You know, they're in a big room with a bunch of people and laptops and they're they're working it out. They're trying. They're staying open. So you gotta you know. be adaptable for sure. Yeah. Well, Jancy, we're out of time. This has been so fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you all day, especially uh, all these stories. And I can't re—I can't wait to to dive in deeper into your book. For Thank people you. to check it out, I guess it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It is everywhere. Um, we'll put a link on our on our website. Thank you. Appreciate um, it. <laughs> but. Um, I think this is going to be the the gift that I give at all the baby showers going forward because I wish dream. somebody would have given it to me when I was had that, my baby shower instead of just saying bliss, bliss, happiness, wonderful, and then and then you're in for some big shock. Exactly. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. It's been such a pleasure. And my pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.